Ephesians chapter 5. We uh, really get into doing a systematic study of God's Word, and that's why we go so slow and meticulous. Um, I, 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 I've not yet been accused of being repetitious uh, because there's different topics we hit on every week, but our idea is that faith comes by hearing. I heard that someplace, rather. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So just by saturating our minds, saturating our hearts with the Word of God, we increase in faith. And our, our idea here is that, that nothing should be preached other than the Word of God. So we just go verse by verse, line upon line, and just ever so slow get through this stuff. And that's the way I think to do it. So this is about the fourth week on these three verses that we've been talking about. Uh, there's just so much there. And we've now officially been in Ephesians for about a, a year and two months or so. Um, so th- this, is, uh, this is great. This is how we should do it. Ephesians chapter 5. And this morning I'm going to be uh, doing more of a teaching thing than a preaching thing. The difference between the two is that when you preach, you usually try to get to the heart through the head. And when you teach, you try to get to the head through the heart. Um, that is to say that teaching tends to have more of a cerebral emphasis, more fact-orientated, whereas preaching is more for motivation and stuff like that. And the two aren't mutually exclusive. Um, but um, this morning is going to emphasize more on the teaching thing because what we're going to be talking about is an issue that I think more than anywhere else we need balance. And so we need to slow down and look at the whole of Scripture and just take it apart piece by piece because it has been a, uh, an issue that has screwed a lot of people up, got a lot of people confused, put a lot of people on the defensive. In fact, as soon as I say it, I guarantee you that there will be a couple hundred people here, not a couple hundred, but a couple dozen, who are going to get nervous. Ready? I want to talk on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, good. Uh, people get nervous. It's like, uh-huh. But I just want to do a little uh, systematic teaching on this whole topic. It comes out of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 18. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Otherwise, I think it's printed in the, uh, in the bulletin. And I'm going to be referring to a number of scriptures here this morning. Um, usually in a teaching time, you ask people to take notes, to go over it. We don't do that here. But if you want to, if this is a topic that's hot for you, I encourage you to do that, or to uh, get a tape, because I'm going to be rattling off scriptures at different points kind of fast. Some of them I'll look up, some of them I won't look up. I'm just doing that for time's sake, but I encourage you to hang with me here this morning. I encourage you to hang with the whole message uh, and not shut off halfway through it, because it takes the whole message to get balanced on this particular topic. Okay, enough prelude. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, let's start with verse 15 again. And I'll read it with a little commentary here just to set the stage for what we're getting at. Be very careful, Paul says, then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Break for a second. What he's getting at, we've seen the last couple of weeks, is this. That we have been brought from darkness into light. We were children of darkness, now we're made children of light. And because that has happened to us, because... We really are new creatures in Christ Jesus. We really have been changed. Our position before God has changed as radically as two positions could ever change. Because that is true, Paul is saying, let it impact your life. Do not reduce Christianity to a theoretical belief that you have. Rather, let this reality dawn on you and impact your life. Let it make a difference in how you live. Since you know what is going on, you know what life is about, you know what the purpose for the whole thing is, Take care how you live. 
Don't live haphazardly as non-believers do. They don't know what the purpose of life is. You do. So be focused, be intentional, be passionate. Take care of how you live. To pay attention to what your life script is. Don't live as unwise, but as wise. Verse 16, make the most of every opportunity. Or we've seen several weeks ago, redeem the time. Submit every moment to the Lord. Live before the Lord on a, on a moment-by-moment basis. Pay attention to how you use your time. Because the days are evil, Paul says. We're in a state of war. Not everything is okay. We must pay close attention to how we use our time. And invest every moment with as much life, with as much love, with as much passion to the glory of God that we can possibly muster. Then verse 17. Therefore, again, Paul says, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. We talked about that last week. Understand what the Lord's will is. Most fundamental thing to know about the Lord's will is that He wants His will to be the will that is done. And He wants His will to come before our will. And so in contrast to so much of me-centered, narcissistic American Christianity that wants their religion to be like their hamburgers done just the way they want it, when they want it, how they want it, with no inconvenience to them. In contrast to all that, the Lord is saying, my will first. Don't try to fit me into your agenda on a Sunday morning. Rather, submit yourself to let me fit you into my agenda. And what the Lord is calling people to be at this time and age is to be radical Sold out, surrendered, soldiers for Jesus Christ. And then he comes to this verse, and this is what we're going to be talking on this morning. It's a way of, that Paul uses to really sum up this whole thing that he's getting at. Do not get drunk in this, do, do not be drunk with wine. Actually, in the Greek, it's, it has a connotation of do not be drunk with wine any longer. Or, you could translate it, stop getting drunk with wine little footnote there, it tells you that the wine in the New Testament is not grape juice. You keep, I keep hearing people say that. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't alcohol back then. Well, you can't get drunk on Welch's grape juice. You can't do it. I... It was wine that could inebriate you. But Paul says, while the Bible is not against, for those people who can handle it, the moderate use of wine, it is uniformly against getting drunk. And so the Bible says here, don't be drunk with wine any longer, but rather, and now Paul's drawing an analogy, be filled, not with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what he's getting at there is this. I think it's a rather profound analogy, and it's interesting that he uses something as crass as drunkenness to do it. But he's saying there this. Well, let's take a minute and pray first. Lord, let your Spirit descend upon us, Lord God, and fill this place. I'm going to be talking about filling with the Spirit, Lord, but we'd rather have the reality. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would flood this place. Lord God, intoxicate us with your presence. I pray, God, that you'd open up the eyes of all who are here this morning, including me, to see you more clearly, your beauty and your power and your grace more more vividly, Lord. And God, just make our faith in you come alive, Lord. I, I sense there are someone here, there are people here this morning who really, really need you to kick in this morning in a way maybe that they've never had you kick in before. Lord God, be present here. Lord, use my words, Lord. Empower my words to accomplish your agenda and free me from my own agenda. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Just like a person when they are inebriated or intoxicated, they say things and they do things that they would not otherwise say and do 
except for the fact that they're intoxicated. So also, Paul is saying here, let the Lord be such in your life so that it can be said about you that you say things and do things that you wouldn't otherwise do, except for the fact that you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Some of you know from experience because you weren't raised Christian or born Christian, or maybe you were Christian and you still know from experience, but you know what it's like when you're drunk. This is, Paul, Paul's appealing to their experience of being drunk to try to teach them something about the Holy Spirit. So as crass as it is, I'm going to do it because it's biblical. But when you're drunk, you do say things that the next morning you wish you wouldn't have said. And people know that the reason you're saying them is because you're drunk. I've been in that situation. You're talking to somebody, I, I love you. Well, you're only saying that because you're drunk. No, no, I'm just saying this is why I was sober. I, really? You're just saying that because, because you're drunk. And the only reason you're walking like that is because you're drunk. You don't normally walk that way. And the only reason you smell like that is because you're drunk. You're thinking things, you're doing things, you're saying things that you would never do if you were sober. You're under the influence. Paul's saying, okay, Ephesians, you know how you used to always go out and get plastered? You know, it's kind of the thing that you guys used to do a lot. Well, now, get plastered with Jesus. That's what he's saying. Get filled with the Holy Spirit. So that what you say, and what you do, and the way you appear to others, and the way you smell, metaphorically, people can tell that you've been around Jesus. People, people can see the influence of Jesus Christ in your life. Last week we said this, and I think it's a good question to ask yourself. If God were to die and disappear and his will were no longer variable, how would your life be different? The sad commentary, I believe, on many Christians' lives is that they wouldn't notice it. Because everything they do and everything they say and the, the way that they live is exactly what they would do no matter what. At some point we've got to ask the question, where does the Lordship of Jesus Christ impact our life? If God is not stretching us at points and maybe making us uncomfortable at points and leading us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do and say things we wouldn't otherwise say and think thoughts we wouldn't otherwise think, we've got to ask the question, what does it mean to call Him Lord? At some point, the rubber's got to hit the road. It's got to impact us. And what Paul is saying here is that it should not only impact us occasionally, it should impact us the way alcohol impacts a drunk person. We should reek with God, be controlled with God. Human beings were never meant to be under the influence of a plant. We were never meant to be controlled by grapes, which is exactly what's happening when you're drunk. But we were created to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, to be under the influence of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying, get intoxicated with God. Get inebriated with God. Get filled with the Holy Spirit. Do not let your Christianity just be a you thing, a what you will kind of a thing, a religion uh, that is a footnote to the rest of what you're about, but rather let it be at the center, the core of what you think, of what you feel, of what you do, of what you say on a day-to-day basis. Let God be to you what alcohol is to a drunk person and be in a state of stupor as much as possible. That's the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now, this has been an issue. And this is where the te- that was the preaching part. Here's the teaching part. This has been an issue that has not been without its controversy. Um, and, and so it's an issue I think that we just have to kind of get on the same page with. It's the kind of thing that no matter what I say, you know, someone's going to disagree with me, and that's okay. That really is okay. God's bigger than that, and our fellowship is bigger than that. But I want you to hear this whole thing and, and, and follow it through scripturally and pray about it and think about it. The first issue is this. Is this feeling, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, as it's called several times in scripture, the word baptism is just a metaphor for, it means immersion. 
And, and so the, the two terms mean essentially the same thing, to be immersed in the Holy Spirit or have the Holy Spirit immersed into you, the filling of the Holy Spirit. The question is, is this an experience that is distinct from believing in Jesus Christ? Is it something that all believers have? Or is it something that is, is an, an experience that is subsequent to or after the experience of salvation? And I think if we are careful about Scripture, we come to the conclusion that it's actually both. Let me explain myself. Paul, throughout the whole book of Ephesians, has been talking to believers. He's talking to believers here. From the first verse of Ephesians, he's talking to believers. To those who are, those saints who are in Christ. They are saints, they are in Christ. And of those believers, Paul says that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in high places. That's true of every believer. It's true of every believer that you have the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's true of every believer, Paul says, that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's true of every believer that you've been made holy and pure and spotless, redeemed in His sight because of what Christ did for you on the cross of Calvary. That is true of every believer. And yet, Paul says here to the Ephesians, be filled. Be filled. In fact, he uses the perfect tense there. Be being filled. And the fact that he can tell believers to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he's assuming that there's something else that he wants from them. There's something else he's appealing to. There's something other than just believing that he's appealing to now. You find the same thing with Jesus to his disciples. The disciples were believers. They saw Christ risen from the dead. Even Thomas, the doubting Thomas, professed faith in Jesus Christ after he saw him alive. They had a faith. They were saved. They had a relationship. But Jesus tells them, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, Wait in Jerusalem till you receive the power. And he says, Because when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to receive power. And then you're going to be witnesses. I want you to wait. Do not move until you get that. And then you'll receive power. Then the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and then you'll be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the outermost parts of the world. Apparently, apparently there was this extra blessing, if you will, or or something or other, that was going to change the disciples, going to supercharge the disciples, going to give the disciples something they hadn't had previously that would make them very effective witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the the outermost parts of the world. If you look at Acts chapter 6, verse 3, the apostles tell the the people, the, the church in Jerusalem, choose, they're looking for some deacons, and they said, choose seven people that you know to be full of the Holy Spirit. Now, the fact that that would be a characteristic mark of someone who's supposed to be in leadership or in service, which is the same thing, by the way, but the fact that you look for that shows that it's not something you can say about everybody. You're looking for something that sets them apart. They're baptized or they're full of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, in fact, I want to turn there. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Philip is here preaching to the church at Ephesus, or to the uh, Samaritans. Samaria, bringing the gospel to them for the first time. Chapter 8, Peter or Philip preaches to them, and then it says this in verse 12, look at this. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, no, it says, but when they believed believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Okay, note this. The Samaritans believed... They obeyed, they repented, they were baptized. They'd done the salvation thing. That's great. They were saved. That's great. 
But Philip still calls for the apostles to come up from Jerusalem. Why? Because something was yet lacking. You see in verse 13. Follow me on this. This is teaching time, folks. When they arrived, that is uh, the apostles, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. You see there very clearly that this Pentecost thing was something that occurred after the Samaritans believed, just like it occurred after the disciples believed. It was subsequent to them, just as in the same way that the Ephesians, Paul says, for them, after they've already been saved, he's been presupposing that his whole letter, now he tells them, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You also see in Acts chapter 19, a very important verse, uh, in verse 2. Acts chapter 19, verse 2. Paul comes to some disciples at Ephesus who had been followers of John the Baptist and had a form of Christianity. They apparently believed in Jesus, but they were very theologically uneducated. And so Paul says this, he sees, he, he, you know, he says something's a little off here, so he says, wait a minute, did, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I mean, or or in, in the Greek it could be after you believed. Did you receive the Holy Spirit after you believed? And they said, we, we never heard of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, ah, okay, well now we got to, we, we you know, okay, now we got to do a little catechism here. So he sees, like, how are you baptized? And he prays for them. And in the end, they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. A couple of conclusions to draw real quickly from, from this little quick Bible study we just did. Number one, it's very clear that the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the infilling of the Holy Spirit, at least as Luke talks about it in the book of Acts and Paul talks about it in the book of Ephesians, it's very clear that that is something that is not strictly equivalent to salvation. There is an empowering, a filling, or something or rather that is a distinct experience for in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, and now we see Ephesians 5, a distinct experience from salvation. Having said that, we've got to be very balanced about this thing, and here's where the imbalance often comes in. That is not in any way to suggest that all believers don't have the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible makes it very clear, undoubtedly clear, that you couldn't even be a believer without the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says this. Paul says, No one can confess Jesus Christ as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Believing in Jesus, you have to have a heart that wants to follow Him. You have to have a heart that wants to believe. But that is not something that is your own doing, it's not your own energy, it's not your own effort, it's not a work that you do that brings you to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the result of the Holy Spirit dwelling in your life. It's the result of the Father drawing you, as Jesus says in John chapter 6 and in John chapter 10. No one can come unto me unless the Father by His Spirit draws him. We have to be drawn by the Holy Spirit. And that's why every believer we find in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, has the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. If you didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you wouldn't care about God. Paul says in Romans 8, uh, verse 11, you would have nothing to do with Christ. You would have no part of Him. Your heart for God, your mind for God, your love for God, that is all the result of God's grace dwelling in you in the form of the Holy Spirit, bringing about faith in your life. And so Paul says you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit by faith. When you believe in Jesus Christ, that is there. And so it is true that all believers have within them, and this is the most amazing truth in the world, folks, all believers have dwelling within them 
the Holy Spirit, who is God Almighty. Think about that. And that's why the Bible can go so far as to make this outlandish claim that you have the power of God Almighty dwelling within you, that Jesus Christ, you have the potential to live the life of Jesus Christ through you, and that the joy of God is yours, and the peace of God is yours, and the confidence of God is yours, and that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1 tells us. You have within you, every believer, I don't care how mature or immature you are here this morning, you have within you a treasure chest of incredible potential for living. God's potential for living. That is within you by His grace. It's not a matter of getting more of God then. Whatever this thing is that we're calling the infilling of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it does not add... Praise God. It doesn't add to what you have when you believe in Jesus Christ because you wouldn't believe in Jesus Christ unless you already had it. It doesn't add to your joy. It doesn't add to your power. It doesn't add to any of this, at least not in terms of the potential that you have. You've got it all when you believe in Jesus Christ. All believers have that, but Jesus Christ doesn't have all of all believers. It's not a matter of how much of God you have. You've got him. He, when he comes, he comes with all that he is. You have that. But the question is, how much of you does God have? How much of that incredible treasure chest that you have here do you use? How much of the Spirit do you walk in? How yielded are you to this? How surrendered are you to this? How central is this to you? To what degree do you get life from Christ within you as opposed to every other idol in the world? And see, it's possible to be a believer and have your heart in your innermost heart, surrender to Jesus Christ, but to have every other thing in your life under your own lordship, and the Holy Spirit's constantly tugging with you, saying, come on, yield more, yield more, yield more. And until you do that, you do not experience and move in the full joy and peace and power and glory that God has for believers. You can live life as more than a conqueror, and we try to live the Christian life on our own effort, and it ends up being a big, long struggle. What Paul is getting at and what Luke was getting at is this. You have the Holy Spirit within you, but the question is, are you immersed in it? The question is, are you drunk with it? The question is, do you reek with it? The question is, does it control you? The question is, are you under the influence? And this thing that Paul calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Holy Spirit is this, is, is this, this, this experience of knowing what it's like to finally break of knowing what it's like to finally throw your hands up in the air, of knowing what it's like to finally be endowed with the power on high, to finally find out, and this is a remarkable breakthrough when you finally get it, what it is to live life not on your own power, but on the power of Jesus Christ. To be able to do things and say things that you wouldn't say on your own power, on your own will, but you're under the influence of Jesus Christ. You're under His control. The first conclusion to draw from this is that believing and the baptism are two different things. Here's where it concerns me. So often, believers, or people come forward and they give their heart to Jesus Christ. And that's all they're told. It's like, okay. And that's beautiful. And all the angels in heaven rejoice when a person comes to repentance. And that's glorious. And they're, they're washed whiter than snow. And a treasure chest is put inside of them. But so often, believers are, that's it. And they're just told that, well, now, now just you know, start reading the Bible and, and pray. And, and, and kind of go along. And they're not told at all how to begin to tap into the incredible ocean, infinite ocean, infinite reservoir, infinite springs of life that dwells within them. 
What Paul's getting at here is saying, Ephesians, Ephesians, do not be Christians who live life on your own power. Do not let this Christianity stuff, because you've been brought from darkness into light, and because the, the Lord's will is the will that you want to govern your life, do not let your Christianity be a footnote to your life. Do not let this be a Sunday morning thing. Do not let this be an incidental thing. Do not try to fit God into your agenda, but rather get intoxicated with God. Yield your all. Yield your everything, mind, heart, body, and soul to the will of Jesus Christ. Surrender everything you're about. Surrender all of your agendas. Surrender all of your ambitions. Surrender all of your dreams. Surrender all of your idols. Surrender all of your ways of of getting life from other sources and focus in on Jesus Christ and let him have everything. So that this river of living water inside of you, this infinite reservoir of peace, love, joy, and power can finally begin to explode out of you. So you can begin to reek with it. You can come under the influence. You can begin to act like a drunk person like they did on the day of Pentecost when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They acted drunk because the Holy Spirit had everything he could have of them. (sighs) This is supposed to be a teaching time, not a preaching time. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) Praise God. Here's the second thing. Here's the second thing you get from these passages real quick. It's really clear. I don't have a watch. What time is it? Time, 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 time. Okay, good. He said, don't worry, Greg, just preach. Uh, okay, fine. I, I, I lost my watch. This week I lost my wallet. I lost my watch. I lost my mind. It's just, uh, in other words, it was a normal week. A second thing is you realize that, that uh, this, this filling of the Holy Spirit was, was something that was normative in, early, in, in, in the early church. The Samaritans... Philip said, wait a minute, you're supposed to have this power that's not your own. I, I, I don't see that. So we're going to call up the apostles here and we're going to pray for you that you get this power. It was normative. The first thing that John the Baptist says about Jesus Christ is that when he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is what's going to characterize the ministry of Jesus Christ after he ascends. He's going to be pouring out his spirit, his personality, his power in people's lives. And they're going to be characterized by that, like we said last week. Radicality is normative in Christianity because we serve a radical God with a very radical Savior and the only appropriate response is radicalness. And those who don't respond radically are the ones who are, who are not fitting into the norm because Christianity was meant to be normative. So also, Christians were meant to be intoxicated, God intoxicated. We were meant to be filled. That's what, and we are never truly at peace and never really walking in harmony until that happens to us. Until we're filled with the Holy Spirit. This is meant to be normative. It's not supposed to be just the special or the pastors or this or that or the other thing. It's meant to be normative. The third thing is this. Usually, in the Bible, when it happens, it happens as an event. It happens like boom, boom, boom. It's right there. Something happens. Something breaks. The car shifts gear. You know, when you're shifting gears, you got to shift it all at once. Uh, You know, when you're learning how to shift gears, sometimes you really kind of screw up the transmission when you try to do it slowly. You know, like, like you go from second into third real slow. It doesn't work that way, does it? You know, if you can't find them, grind them kind of thing. And, and uh, you've got to do it fast. You've got to be decisive. There's a point where you've just got to make up your mind. It's a big decision in life. I will to go from fourth gear into fifth gear. And you just do it. You know? And pray you don't find reverse in the process. But see, that's exactly what it is here. In Acts 2, and in Acts 8, and in Acts 10, and in Acts 19, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, it happened in an event. Bam, it happened. That's why they use this phrase, it fell upon them, or it was poured out upon them. It wasn't a gradual thing that you sort of oozed into, you know, over the years, kind of gradual. It was a, it was a breaking moment. And I, and, and I think the point of that is this. Don't be afraid of, of, of uh, life-changing experiences. That's not a sign of being emotionally imbalanced. That's a very biblical thing. Life-changing experiences where 
You sell out like you never did before. Well, all of a sudden, your mind's turned on. You're, you're, you're hitting on all pistons like you never did before. Where God gets more of you than he ever had before. Usually, I find, and I think this is biblical, that that happens when I finally yield more than I ever had before. It's a life-changing experience. I've had several of them in my life. My experience, and I bet this is, I think this is very biblical, is that you don't just kind of, you don't just gradually at a steady pace mature and mature and mature and mature and mature. That's not how it works, I don't think. Because there's a constant pull downward in this world. In this fallen world, there's a constant pull to, to, to go to mediocrity and carnality. The way we grow, I believe, is, is, is it's what Chuck Swinzell said. You go two, three steps forward, two steps backward. You know, you kinda, it kind of goes like this. Right? You know, and, and sometimes you're on the up and sometimes you're on the down. But the overall, looking over the last 20 years, you should hope that there's some upward climb. It's those moments where you shoot up, where you break you decide to be a different person. You decide that you're not going to do it the same way. You're not going to think the same way. You're not going to live the same way. You're not going to respond the same way. You're a little tired of this anger trip you're going on. You're a little tired of doing it on your own power. You, you, there comes a point where you just wake up to the fact that you are not living in the full reality of the Holy Spirit. And, you, and, and there's a breaking experience where you give God more of you than you had before. And I think that's what, 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 what the Bible's getting at here. Breakthrough experiences. It happens. Bam. Don't be afraid of those. It can happen up here. It can happen at your home. It can happen in small groups where you just say, Lord, just take it all, and bam, there's this experience that, that, that shifts you from third-gear Christianity to fifth-gear Christianity. But it's not something. Here's the final point, and then we've got to move to the second issue here. But, but the, here's the thing. It, it's an experience that happens at a point in time, but it's not like it happens once for you, and then, and then you have arrived. Sometimes you find Christians like that. I was baptized in the Spirit in 1974, and, and it's like, from here on, you just sort of coast, you know? I've arrived. Paul says, be being filled. Be being filled. This isn't a one-time thing. In the book of Acts, you find that the apostles were filled with, the, the, all the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And then in Acts chapter 4, it says they were filled again. And they spoke the word of God in boldness. At chapter 4, verse 31. So also with us. Don't be coasting on the great experiences you had last night or 10 years ago. But rather, our heart's ambition should be to say, Lord, I, I got drunk with you last night, but I, I'd like to get more drunk tonight. And this morning, you know, I, I know it's, it's, you, you quote this out of context and I'm in trouble, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Boyd said we should get drunk with Jesus. <laughs> and then you can play that snippet and say goodbye to my Bethel career. <laughs> <laughs> No, he's like, Lord, I, I can't get too intoxicated. You know what's really great is in worship when you just lose yourself? I don't know if, you, if that happened to you this morning, but sometimes in worship you just get lose yourself. And I don't know if you've ever had the blessing of God come on you like this, but you can lose yourself to the point where, you know, you really are, like they were on the day of Pentecost. People looked at them and said, what a bunch of drunken fools. And Peter stands up and gives the, the greatest refutation I've ever heard. Well, it's, not, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I, you know, we usually wait till at least noon, you know, but... but <laughs> 9 o'clock in the morning, which proves, by the way, that you can have these kind of experiences early in the morning. <laughs> that just hurt me. Seriously. Okay. Um, well, sometimes I think the 9 o'clock service needs to hear that. It's like, come on, you guys. Get drunk in the spirit. Okay, second issue is this, and I got, I'll go through this one really quick. The question is, how do you know when it happens to you? Cha-ching, million-dollar question. How do you know when it happens to you? And, and here's the background of the whole thing. This question is what birthed the Pentecostal movement in, in this century. In 1900, uh, a, a, a pastor, oh, restlessness, like, oh, no, <laughs> here he comes. <laughs> What's he going to say? Um, 
it should not have, it should, it's sad that this beautiful teaching has gotten so, it's, it's so tense. Just relax. Relax! Um, but a pastor assigned his, his, his Bible students this question. He said, find the, the initial evidence of having received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so they, they, they did this Bible study, and, and on, the, uh, on New Year's Eve of 19, 1900, just going into the year 1901, they came to the conclusion that it was speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is the initial evidence. Now, I think it's unfortunate that you pose that question. Why are you looking for the initial evidence? Is there a verse that tells you you're supposed to look for the initial evidence? But they decided to look for the initial evidence, and they came up with this idea that it's speaking in tongues. They came up with this conclusion on the basis of three passages of Scripture, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, in Acts chapter 19, where Luke just notes, he just notes this, that when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues. He also says in two of those instances that they prophesied. But that, for some reason, didn't get included as the initial evidence. And so a doctrine was created that has been a very divisive doctrine throughout this whole century, and is so today. That's the reason why a few of you are kind of nervous right now. And it, because it is said that, unless you speak in tongues, you can't have the Holy Spirit. And what that did is it created, it created a two-tiered kind of Christianity. You have those tongue speakers who have arrived and those non-tongue speakers who haven't arrived. And that creates this unusual phenomenon. You have to say that people like Billy Graham and Jonathan Edwards and all the other great, uh, Charles Finney and all the other great preachers throughout church history lack the power of God <laughs> because they didn't have the power from on high. Whereas everyone who speaks in tongues uh, does. Now, if every person who spoke in tongues had more spiritual evangelistic power than Charles Finney, I maybe would believe that, but I don't see that. Frankly, I've never seen how the Christian pie divides along the lines of those who practice glossolalia, which is speaking in tongues, and those who don't. It just doesn't cut down that way. But it creates that weird phenomena. It creates this weird phenomena. You have people doing something that the Bible never encourages people to do, and that is they look for the gift of tongues. They try to speak in tongues. No one in the Bible, when they spoke in tongues, knew that, they, that, 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 that's, knew that that's what was going to happen to them. They, it just happened. It was an incidental thing. And now you have people who are trying to speak in tongues. And now you have this. You have people who put peer pressure on other people to speak in tongues. In, in some church circumstances, and I was in a church just like this for a long time, um, the idea is here that you're a subclass Christian or you're just kind of depowered or you're not filled or something unless you speak in tongues. So then you get people trying to coax you into tongues. And that creates some bizarre behavior over the altar, rocking people back and forth, grabbing their jaw, saying, you know, come say hallelujah. And, and, and we had all sorts of things, you know. I've read books, How to Receive the Baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm not kidding. By a well-known evangelist. Tells you what to say to get, to get the Holy Spirit. Say, you know, something like, come see my maroon bow tie and ride my economy Yamaha. He tells you what words to say. I'm, I'm serious. It's a book. And then you have people, okay, okay, just say it. Just repeat after me. You know, skin of my knee. Ride my Yamaha or whatever, you know. And here's what's sad. Two things happen, for, folks, that, you know, two things happen that are very sad. One is, one is that people do that and they think that they have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then they, they sort of like say, okay, I've arrived. And, it's so, and they're not at all tapping in the treasure chest of, of what God has for them. Many people who are cajoled into speaking in tongues, really don't have the gift of tongues, but they, they've heard it, and so they try to imitate it, and they're sincere. They're just, you know, but that's where you get people speaking in tongues that really sound bizarre. You know, I've been in some prayer meetings where people, it sounds like some kind of laser beam or whatever, and, and they're trying to speak in tongues when it's not a genuine thing. And a lot of these churches, people have the genuine gift, and there are people who don't. But everyone's supposed to have it, so those who don't 
try to have it. And then they feel, they always wonder, is this for real? I don't know, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da. It creates bizarre sorts of things that shouldn't be there. The bottom line is that the Bible never teaches that speaking in tongues is any sort of initial physical evidence of anything. Luke three times just mentions that the people who received the baptism did speak in tongues. Twice he records people receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he doesn't mention them speaking in tongues. All right? Three times he mentions them receiving the Holy Spirit, and he includes there that they not only spoke in tongues, but they also prophesied. The bottom line is that you can't build a doctrine on the basis of historical precedent. It's a very important principle. Luke says what happened. He doesn't say what should always happen. Balaam got spiritual advice from a donkey. I wouldn't want anyone to make a donkey, or make a donkey out of me. Uh, I wouldn't want anyone to go around saying we ought to go be asking donkeys spiritual advice. But God, if he wants to do it, can do it. And, and, and Peter healed somebody with his shadow in the book of Acts, but that doesn't mean we should come up with a doctrine that says that we should heal people with their shadow. You know, the healers are up here and the sick people are down there and we're trying to get our shadow on them. You know, but if you're going to start doing a historical precedent, well, where are you going to stop? Gideon's fleece, you know. Uh, he threw out this fleece three times trying to get the Lord's will. The Bible tells us what happened, but it certainly doesn't prescribe that as a way, a legitimate way to go find God's will. And people, when they do that, are, are as, as often as not going to be asking for trouble because it's not a biblical way. If God did that one time, that's God's prerogative, but there's nothing in the Bible that says that's the way it always should happen. And so it is with, with, with this, this deal of speaking in tongues. Sometimes when a person is, is overwhelmed by the Spirit of God, they can speak in tongues and praise God for that. And we at Woodland Hills are all for that. We believe in all the gifts of the Spirit, including the gift of tongues. It's been a very valuable gift to me. I practice it uh, for the last 20 years. We believe in that. We encourage believers to be open to all the gifts of the Spirit. But there's nothing in particular special about speaking in tongues. In fact, if you're going to come up with a, with a criteria, you know, that, uh, what is the initial evidence, what the Bible does teach is that prophecy is one consequence of receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, Acts, Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up. People say, well, what's, what's happening to these people? They look drunk. Peter says, this is the Holy Spirit, which is prophesied in Joel, when he said, "Upon my, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And they will speak in tongues? No. They will prophesy. The young, the young daughters are going to prophesy. The old men are going to prophesy. The young men are going to prophesy. Prophecy being, just meaning they're God-anointed speech, God-empowered speech. One thing that happens to a believer, and it, Jesus says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall speak in tongues? No, you shall receive power, and you're going to be witnesses. What the Holy Spirit does, and I'm not saying that prophecy is the, you know, the sign we should go looking for, you know, like, oh, have you pro- do you prophesy? But if you're going to do that, this would be the gift to, to land on because the Bible does teach that one consequence of being God intoxicated is you tend to speak the word of God with boldness. Paul says that, that's why Paul says that, 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 uh, um, t- that, that prophecy is a greater gift than tongues. He's not minimizing tongues. He says in, in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, I speak in tongues more than all you guys. Now, Corinthians were some pretty heavy tongue talkers. But he says, I'd rather have the gift of prophecy. Why? Because when I get anointed for prophecy, when I begin to speak the word of God with boldness, people get saved. People begin to hear. People can begin to see that I'm God intoxicated, and that points them to Jesus Christ. In the end, here's the bottom line. What is the initial evidence of receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The answer is, wrong question. John the Baptist said that Jesus is going to send out the Holy Spirit. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. When someone's on fire, you don't need to... Ask for particular evidence. You can usually tell. My, I, whenever I've seen anyone on fire, I can always tell. Um, 
You know, you can smell flesh burning. That's one evidence. They're screaming. That's another evidence. Um, they're rolling on the ground. Uh, usually, you know, there's... Now, what if someone saw someone rolling on the ground and screaming, and they could smell the flesh, but there's no smoke? And they said, well, wait a minute. You can't have uh, fire without a smoke. Therefore, this person's really not on fire. That's what's happening. You've got people who are just anointed with God, speaking the word of God with boldness, living God, living a God-empowered life, but they don't have the gift of tongues. And so you've got some people out there saying, well, you're not baptized with the Spirit, and they're living a life that's ten times more supercharged than the person who's speaking in tongues. There's no one piece of evidence you can look for. When you're on fire, you just know it. Or to go back to the first analogy, when you're drunk, you can tell. You know, you can tell. And the person who's drunk can maybe try to even tell you that they're not drunk. But you can tell. It's just... It's just there's not one piece of evidence to look at. Well, did you smell his breath? Okay. Well, he might have taken breath mints. How do you know? Uh, well, is he staggering? Some people can walk pretty, uh, pretty straight when they're drunk. Well, is he slurring? Some people, I have known people who could get drunk and they, they didn't slur. There's no one thing you look for. But when a person's really drunk, what a strange sermon this is. When a person is really drunk, you can tell. You just got to look at it. And so it is with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They wouldn't do if they weren't under influence. They operate with gifts of the Spirit they could not possibly operate in if they weren't under the influence. They lead a kind of life that, that is clear, it's, it, that they're under the influence of something that is not their own. You can tell it. And here's the point for all of us. None of us can say, I've arrived and you have not. Rather, Paul's teaching is, is, is for all believers. He's, he says it to all believers, be continually filled. Be drinking from the well of God's God-intoxicating power. However far advanced in the Christian life you are, you can get farther. Be drunker. Be more filled. Be hungry. Be thirsty for God. And however new you are to the Christian walk, be asking God to take more of you away from yourself, to free you from yourself, to crucify yourself, to yield more. That this treasure chest that every believer has inside could finally explode and come and come unleashed. Never let your Christianity become habitual, routine, Sunday morning, theoretical, abstract, not life impending, not, not life impacting, just a philosophical thing you have. Never let that happen. Be God intoxicated. Seek to be that morning, noon, and night. Be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you for the provision that you've given us. You didn't just rescue us from hell, Lord. Man, you 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 poured us into the ocean of your own being and the ocean of your love and power. And God, every believer here this morning has that. I pray, Lord God, that we could learn how to uncork this, uh, this, this, this uh, gusher, Lord. I pray, Lord God, we could learn how to tap into this treasure chest. I pray, Lord God, we could learn how to submit and yield and be filled with your Holy Spirit. In fact, Lord, I, I, I pray for several here this morning who are at the point you have cultivated them to be where the disciples were on the day of Pentecost. And this morning is the time where you want to break through and fill them with your Spirit. Lord, I pray that that would happen this morning. I pray, God, you'd pull them forward here. Come up front here and, and, and get baptized in your spirit, Lord. Create in us, Lord God, a congregation of people who are drunk with you. In your name we pray. Amen.